1: Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I'm Russell Tovey.
2: And I'm Robert Diamant.
1: And this is Talk Art.
2: Welcome to Talk Art.
1: Now tell me, how are you, Rob?
2: Today, Russell, I am feeling. Technical.
1: Oh, good.
2: Um, because the last few weeks has just been crazy in, in the art news. For the last few days. And also the mainstream news, because mm. everything's got quite technical, hasn't it? And it has. Unless you are tech savvy, which I'm not really, I mean, I'm kind of half tech savvy.
1: Um, you're you're bi-savvy, bi-tech. Yeah.
2: But what? i um, bisexual. Anyway. <laughs> no, I'm 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 actually gay. Uh, <laughs> are you? But yes. Yeah. But um, there's Whoa. been the emergence of NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens,
1: tokens.
2: into the mainstream, mm. which is something that our guest today has been predicting for many years, and he happens to be a great friend of ours. Mm-hmm. So we thought we would be quite. Uh, what's the word? Like on the pulse and quite like art newsy and do an episode dedicated to this recent phenomenon to try and work out what it all means because We are a bit confused, and we want to be educated as much as we can, and hopefully, it's going to help our listener, our listeners, um, learn as well. Yes. And this guest is an amazing curator. He's an amazing art advisor. He's been a supporter of artists for a long, long time. He's um, put on shows like the first ever show of artists that I love, like um, Michael Armitage. Yes. And also exhibitions about queer art in the UK. Absolutely. And he's a real champion of art, but also kind of queer art and. And he's just a wonderful human being and has even hung out with us here in Margate on uh, the few occasions which, which he's come here. And I remember some wonderful evenings we've had here. So, yeah, he's a great friend of ours and I've actually always wanted him on Talk Art, And this is the perfect opportunity to also explore his career. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art
3: Simon, Simon Oldfield.
2: Oldfield. Hi, Hello. Simon.
3: Hi, guys.
2: So Where nice are you today?
3: To I'm in London. Oh, and you're thought, in Margate. Oh, I thought you were going to say
2: LA, because I know that you're often in Los Angeles a oh, lot.
3: I miss LA so much, I can't wait to get on a flight and be there again. <laughs> See all my friends and feel the sun on my face and all oh, those things, like everyone else.
1: Absolutely. It's, kind of it's a bit sunny today, though. It's been nice today.
3: It has been very nice today. Yes.
1: Right. Well, anyway, weather aside, you have come on as our <laughs> resident nifty expert now everybody listening you may or may not know you may have followed this as rob was saying that this phenomenon has entered from the art world uh echelons into mainstream media because what's happened in the last couple of days is that one of these digital artworks which are called nfts as rob said non-fungible tokens which we will explain went on to Christie's as the first time that a digital artwork was being auctioned it started at a hundred dollars and it rapidly went up, and the last two days, it sold for $69.3 million. Now, this is a work made by uh, an artist whose real name is Mike Winkleman. He's a graphic designer, but he goes under the name Beeple. And we are here to talk about this phenomenon, but what this means for the art world as a whole. And we're coming to Simon Oldfield, who is actually uh, an expert, because you won a national competition with your writings on this many years ago.
3: I did. That was a very long time ago. It was, I think almost 20 years ago, maybe just over 20 years. It was a dissertation I wrote as part of my law degree. So, you know, even when I was an undergrad, and I revisited it quite recently when all of this started, started to kind of kick off thinking, you know, this. let's just see where, uh, you know, what, what ideas were thought that were discussed in there that maybe has resonance for today. And it's amazing, actually, how you how you translate, how you think about it, how these things translate through the years, and then become something, and the whole world sort of picks up and carry. it becomes a a much larger thing than you ever first predicted. But it's the ideas that are that were discussed all the, those years ago with me that have become so significant now. And so yeah, I did. I examined it all those years ago. Won an award for my dissertation. I had professors and. All well, these people were telling me that they had no idea what really the internet was going to do and why was it really relevant and why did we need to really examine this in any particular way and was it sort of looking for solutions to a problem that didn't really exist? And of course, all that is kind of history now because we know that these things have you know, they become not just fundamental to the like legal world, but to, to everyone and every aspect of our lives. You know, that particular dissertation was looking at the interaction between intellectual property and the internet, you know, the internet being a global system, of course, that we all understand today, but the the laws that, that apply are jurisdictional. So it was looking at, you know, how do those two things interact with each other? Where do they come into conflict? And how do you resolve those things? And at the time, there was a lot of debate around domain names and how domain names would uh, interact with trademarks specifically. And, you know, there were, there were lots of cases around sort of cyber squatting and people who were just you know, competing interests. So two different facets, So things, some things were done, you know, with maybe some negative intentional for the intention to kind of, to, to claim, you know, kind of a, a ransom, I suppose, from companies that own trademarks. Or there might be two companies with two uh, trademarks registered in different countries or for different goods and services. So Apple, for example, multiple trademarks with Apple in the trademark, but actually only one registered apple.com. It happens to be you know, the computers that we all use, but actually could have been any of the other competing interests. All of that's been resolved in many ways, you know, through the courts, through legislation, through different uh, different countries are have taken slightly different approaches. And you have the DNS system. So domain names are are a centralized systems. so there's yeah, one there's a dot com and all the other uh, uh ways that you can uh, denote a, a website but those but those things have largely been resolved and trademark law has been has been reconciled with the way that uh, domain names operate but we're now we're kind of do, having similar conversations around nfts around cryptocurrency around the way that Decentralised computer systems and networks operate because it's changing the way that you know, so fundamentally it's changing the way that we all operate, the way that we interact, and the, the, the sort of our concepts of what it means to regulate any particular environment. So you know the, the whole premise of a decentralised network is that everything is done by a series of of computers on the blockchain. It is a it is by nature not centralised. So there is not one individual body, there's not one individual person or organisation or government that's taken any of this, any control over any of these things, and is not uh, therefore able to control any of it. So what's interesting is that you're going to have, you know, legally, there are so many different structures that need to come into play, because all the contracts that are being executed to produce an NFT are built on the blockchain. And those blockchain contracts exist forever. Once they are created, they, they exist forever. And they are legally binding upon those parties. But there's not one individual person that keeps track of all of those things. So it's a decentralized system for uh, something which is you know, now attracting huge amounts of value and attention. Yeah. So something that sold yesterday with Beeple was sold for you know, 69.4 million, almost 70 million dollars. And it's based obviously on a contract, and it's an nft that's been issued as a, a token a non fungible token and maybe we need to talk about what that actually
1: yeah is. let's break these all down in so you're you're basically an internet prophet and you're like <laughs> a wunderkind and you could spot all this happening like blade runner runner. you were there at the forefront but so so let's just go back and really do this nft for dummies
2: also cryptocurrencies. can you explain that as well yeah
1: and bitcoin Onto- i mean but we, we, there's got a lot of people out there that are like. Frustrated at this, trying to understand, wanting to understand, wanting to jump on it. Like, how do I make these? How do I buy these? How do I make all this money suddenly? Because it feels like there is all this money suddenly being made, and everybody who doesn't understand it is getting like scratching at the door to get in.
3: Do you know, I hear the excitement in your voice, actually. Uh, it's just like, it, it, it's a bit how, how I was thinking when I first started you know, thinking about what we're going to say on here. There's so much to say, there's so much to discuss, and you want to get it all out in the first 30 seconds. And of course, it's actually really complex. And there's a lot, there are many different layers to it. And you want to explain it, break it all down. But then you think, well, where do you start with that? Because, you know, there is a lot to discuss. Okay, so let's start with, should we start with cryptocurrency? Because that's so. kind of where it all began, actually. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought, Yeah. So, cryptocurrency is essentially yeah the currency that is used to trade NFTs, but it's also the currency that's used to trade on many other uh, on these DeFi networks. So, you know, through the Ethereum network or any other network, Ether is oh crikey, I'm complicating it from, yeah already. Well, aren't DeFi I? and uh, <laughs> e- Let's start with Bitcoin. Bitcoin was created um, in two thousand and nine. It's a limited number of bitcoins that can ever be mined. Created as a uh, and that, that limit is 21 million. So they are described in some respects as being, you know, some people describe them as in the simplest way liquid gold, because there's a finite amount of Bitcoin that can ever be produced. Oh, right. Currently in existence, there are about, I think it's 18.4 million roughly that are in circulation that have been mined already today. So there's been quite a yeah that's quite a that's quite quick mining. If you look over the last nine to ten years, they've mined eighteen point four million. When you say mined,
1: why can't they just press a button and create it? Why is it something that it's like literally they're digging out gold when it's an they algorithm? They digging
3: out gold, but through computers, and that's where all the, the you know the kind of environmental aspects come in because there's a huge amount of energy that is used to to mine these bitcoins because there's it takes a whole yeah. You know, banks and banks of computers and servers and and power to generate this mining process to so for each block of bitcoins they are they are mined and placed onto a block on the blockchain and every time you're mining a a bitcoin in the simplest terms you have to use a lot of energy to make all the essentially to make all the codes connect i think that's the best way to describe it and initially, when it was being produced, it was, very, it was, it was easier okay. to do it. There were high rewards for some of the miners, so it was all being done very swiftly. And so, you know, um, there, were, there were quite a lot of Bitcoins produced very early on, and that process is slowing down. It's built into the system to slow down. It's kind of described as a way to manage the inflation of Bitcoin. Um, so each, so every so often, periodically, the number of Bitcoin per block halves. So, actually, what's interesting, even though we've got to 18.4 million Bitcoins currently in the circulation, it's going to take us to about 2140 to mine the remaining Bitcoin, the 3.5 million Bitcoin. So, we've got a whole load of time between now and then mm. before we will actually have all Bitcoin.
1: Who decided, though, Simon?
3: So it's written into the code. It's written into the protocol. It can, you know, unless the protocol is changed... Who
1: who wrote that?
3: Who built built the code? Who
1: wrote the code and built the code? Who said, right, I'm writing this code for these coins. We're going to mine them. It's going to take this long. We can only do 21 million. We're never making any more after that. That's it.
3: Yeah, exactly. So it was basically by Satoshi, he produced... he he wrote the code or well everyone assumes it's a he it actually might not be a he he's it's anonymous uh it's assumed potentially that it's a a, a man in his 40s of japanese heritage actually we don't really know and um there are claims there's an australian guy who claims to be the person who wrote the code but no one really knows for sure so you have now you have you have you can you can have a, a i suppose a kind of a you know, you can fractionalize a Bitcoin now, and you can own part of a Bitcoin, which is like a Satoshi. And those are, you know, I'm not an crypto expert, so you know, forgive me if I get any of this phrasing wrong. <laughs> but you know, basically, this is what we're talking about. So you can buy an you know a part of a Bitcoin. So you could own you know a percentage of one, or you know, a very small like percent. a Trivial Pursuit cheese. Yeah, like a true pursuit cheese. Or like a little bit of coinage in your yeah, pocket. Yeah, or like 10 you know? p or 5p. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's Decimal, the way so to yeah. think of it. Okay. And so it's written into the code as the base code that it can only ever be 21 million of these produced, which is why everyone's getting so excited about it, because it's finite. So, you know, no one can really... I mean, theoretically, I suppose anything could be changed, but, you know, the idea is that it can't be changed and that it will once you reach the 21 million, that's it. And because it's getting harder and harder to, to mine those those remaining Bitcoins, it's the, the, the value is going up. And also there are a whole other load of factors playing into it. There is institution, institutional um, buyers, there are corporate buyers, there are loads of retail buyers piling into the Bitcoin space. And arguably that's what's pushing up the price. And interestingly today, Just before we came on to air to talk about this, it hit a new record. It smashed through 60,000 US dollars per Bitcoin, which is the first time it's ever done that. It's just dipped below that again. Literally right now, I'm looking at my screen, but it's... How much
1: would they have been to buy in the first place?
3: Oh, they were like, you know, nothing. Yeah. a few hundred dollars or less than that. But, you know, they, they wow. used to remain quite low for quite a long time. And is there a and limit? Even, last year, even last year, you know, beginning of last year, they were very, very low. So the, the rise has been very rapid, particularly in the last 12 months. And arguably, people say, you know, the way that the pandemic has operated and unfolded and the way the economy has really shifted and the way that we all interact with each other is part of the reason why mm. Bitcoin has risen so much. Yes.
1: Well, cash, you can't touch cash at the minute. So all the thing is like you can only use credit card or you can tap your phone when you're buying food at the supermarket. Cash is like passing on the virus. So obviously you want to get rid of that. So keep it as much as that. Is there a limit to how many you can buy? Is there like something or could someone theoretically own all 20 million bitcoins
3: eventually? I don't think that'd be possible now. I think it'd be like, you know, like not everybody could own Not one single person could own every single bar of gold in the world. Okay but you know i suppose theoretically it's possible but it's such a remote possibility i just don't think that would happen but i, I you know and i don't think there is a limit on how much any individual could own uh, apart from the the fact the limit the limits on on what's available and what's actually in circulation so what a lot of people are doing at the moment is they are literally taking off their bitcoin from circulation and the problem at the moment it's not really a it's not you can't really use it for very much you know so it's it's largely seen as a store of value so people are you know, buying Bitcoin, they're holding Bitcoin, but they're not really doing very much with it, apart from either trading Bitcoin or holding it. Because, you know, we can't walk into Sainsbury's or Starbucks and use our Bitcoin to buy Yet. anything. Yet. Yet. And that's the key. Yet. You know, there's lots of talk about what you might be able to do with it in the future. Tesla's saying they will be that they will be accepting Bitcoin. You know, there are um, PayPal talking about being able to accept Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. You know, there are a whole areas of of the economy which are beginning to look at this and you know it be, it's only a matter of time i would say before we are before major institutions and corporations are accepting bitcoin as 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 you know part of their payment structure um and you know uber said to, for example they're not yeah, and buying some people, some people in the art world yeah uh, yeah exactly some people in the art world completely and you know like actually looking at people that was bought with cryptocurrency. It wasn't bought with Bitcoin, it was bought with Ether, which is another cryptocurrency I've seen as the, it's sort of the, it's the number, it's the second largest. How,
1: how many cryptos are there?
3: Oh, there are loads and they keep growing as well. Um, but, you know, I think they all do slightly different things. They all seek to, to kind of solve different problems, different solutions. So, so for example, Ether exists because it is the currency that's linked to the Ethereum network. Now, the Ethereum network, you know, the technology is, is what a lot of these NFTs are built on. And it's the it, it creates and it, it fits into this decentralized system as well. So therefore, it makes sense for Ether to be the currency that is used to to transact with these NFTs and any other, you know, whether it's artwork or any other kind of NFT. Um, so Bitcoin is 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 kind of was the first and is you know seen as liquid gold, seen as the gold standard Who knows where it will end up? And it's probably a subject for a a whole nother conversation. But there are all these other cryptocurrencies which are doing interesting things as well. And Ether is not limited in the same way that Bitcoin is, which is you know, arguably why people say it maybe it won't ever get to the level of Bitcoin, but it does something different. You know, it operates in a different way. And there's a new tech there's an update coming to Ether in Ether, Ethereum actually is the, you know the underlying technology in July ish this year. It's just been announced. And that changes the way that it's structured. It actually addresses some of the environmental and climate issues, and it changes the transaction fees, which makes it more affordable for people to use. Because actually Trading in crypto at the moment is quite expensive. You know, there are lots of individual transaction fees. They're called gas fees in Ethereum, for, in Ether, for example. So each individual miner to make a contract binding to come together um, costs Ether, basically. It costs a gas fee. And all of that's expensive. And that's all changing. And that will make, I think, come July, August, it will, again, change the way that this market operates. Because at the moment, it's so complicated. Yes. I mean, you've got to be really tech savvy to understand this you've got to be able to you've got to be kind of aware of what you're stepping into it feels you know quite mind-boggling to be quite honest Mm. and I think that there's a there's a real danger that that will you know lead to some really unintended consequences people stepping into things and not quite knowing what they're really signing up for at the same time I think it has a revolutionary quality that could completely change everything you know, way beyond the art world, but certainly within the art world in a way that we've never really kind of anticipated and certainly not even today what we're anticipating. So I think it could, I think the potential is enormous, but we've got to resolve probably quite a lot of the issues and break it down for people. And even then, I still don't think it's very straightforward because if I gave you a five-point guide as to how you create an NFT as an artist and another five-point guide about how you acquire an NFT as a collector, I still don't think it'd be that easy for someone to actually do it, Um, which is why all my clients are like, oh, we really want to do this, but how do we do it? And it's, it's complex. And you've got and there are lots of legal aspects to it, which I don't think have been fully resolved yet. And certainly, even if they have been resolved, they haven't been tested in the, you know, you know, in the courts or in any kind of, um, you know, or or through legislation, even.
2: That's so interesting. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about as well as the idea of like, um, the regulations, and kind of, the legalities of it all, because um, I know we haven't got to the art part yet, but I did talk to an artist about it the other day, and she sent me loads of different comments to do with it. And some of them were to do with this idea, allegedly, obviously, um, that, that this whole kind of universe, this new radical rebel kind of system um, could be used for like money laundering or avoiding like financial regulation or sort of normal regulated kind of punishments that can happen, you know, with US banking or investment or stocks and shares. And that they were saying to me that this idea of NFTs actually threatens artists as well. And it's a fascinating kind of, So that I didn't really totally understand why, but it's so interesting. I, I, I don't know if you know more on that.
3: But. I think it's, I agree as with you. There is, there's been a lot of crypt, criticism of cryptocurrencies um, because of its potential use by m- money launderers, criminals and a whole host of other, you know, unsavory purposes. Um, and because of its nature, it is because it's decentralized. Because it, the ability to be able to use use it and acquire it and hold it in a either anonymous or pseudonymous way, yes, it, it masks the ownership of a lot of these things, and that is a problem. And it has been criticised by you know people who don't want to use it for those reasons. They see all the good benefits for it, all the mm-hmm. upsides of cryptocurrency and decentralized networking. Those are all fantastic, but you kind of have to resolve, well, you not kind of have to, you have to resolve all of the other negative sides of it. So, you know, if you take, you know, the kind of criminal and the money laundering aspects of it, you know, proceeds for you know, proceeds for terrorism and all these other things, which are just, you know, kind of horrific to think that you might even be swimming in the same waters as those people. But actually... There are, there are yeah. efforts to be made and you know, to, 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 to tidy all that up, to clean it up. And there are certain platforms where you, they're kind of the you know, exchanges for these cryptocurrencies, um, which are working very hard, working in tandem with the regulators and with governments to ensure that all the standard, to apply all the sort of un, money laundering checks that you'd expect in any kind of financial banking or any other financial system uh, in any kind of major transaction, whether it's art or anything else, and so some of the ones that are doing that very well, there's one, there's one here called Coinfloor, which is based in the UK. It's and there's another one called Coinbase in the US. Coinbase is poss- probably the bi- biggest, and they're looking to 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 float as a as a exchange. That's where people go and they exchange, they acquire and they sell Bitcoin and any other cryptocurrency, and they're working really hard to to clean up the whole um, the whole area, I suppose, and address the concerns that were raised by the artists you spoke to. And I hope that that is resolved, because otherwise it threatens to undermine the entire system, and it will then undermine the potential for it. So it's really important.
2: And one quick question. So you can have more than one digital, sorry, w- w- more than one cryptocurrency. So you can have like all these different companies making this cryptocurrency, so whether it be that supposed, um, alleged, whatever the word is, uh, Japanese, you know, developer who the created the bank- banksy uh, of the crypto world, yeah, the yeah. banksy of the <laughs> cryptocurrency world, the um, the guy called who you know who who, who did um, Bitcoin, uh, Satoshi, um, or so so you you are able to have more than one. So in a way, it's it's a bit like having Apple versus. PC or, you or know, pound versus-, versus
1: euro, isn't it? Or like you know like the lira and the drachma and the.
3: It is exactly. I think they some of them. So I suppose seek to operate like a fiat currency, like a currency for a fiat currency is a national currency. So like mm-hmm. a, a, the US dollar, mm-hmm. a British pound, and so some of them seek to operate in that way. I suppose, and, so, and there are cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and then there are others that like stable coins are tied, tethered to a fixed asset like the dollar or any other fixed asset to kind of create, to try and remove some of the volatility that you see within the cryptocurrency world. So Bitcoin, for example, can, can, you know, swing, by 10% in any one day, or lose potentially 50% of its value over several days, which is wow. why you know there are lots of warnings saying you know it, you really should not be investing in this unless you can afford to to do it. And you know, and I think it's, it's 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 sort of a fair, obviously it's very fair comment to make sure that people know what they're doing and what they're stepping into because there's every risk that the that your your know, principal investment could be could be lost. But to your point, Rob, yeah, absolutely, you can hold. You could, as an individual, hold multiple different cryptocurrencies, and there are multiple ones out there, and they're all operated by different people, and they have different or different organisations. They have different functions. So, for example, there's you know there's a lot of games, for example, and game environments that or virtual worlds like Decentraland and and these sort of things. It feels like
1: Ready Player One. You ever read that novel or seen that movie where they're all just they basically just log into this world and you have your virtual life. You hear about these stories of, you know, families who in real life neglect their kids because in this virtual life they're like kings and queens of this village they've set up it's like this absolute virtual existence it feels like we're going into
3: yeah exactly and so it's 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 it's, it's you can use certain cryptocurrencies in that way they only you you go into this these virtual worlds and they have their own cryptocurrencies that allow you to trade within that environment so it's you know whether it's buying a skin for your avatar whether it's buying you know beauty products for your avatar, whether it's buying a piece of virtual land or whatever it might be, and those have their own little cryptocurrencies that may or may not have a value or a use outside of that environment. But Bitcoin is seeking to operate, you know, outside in the real world. I think that's what's different about it.
2: Something that I find really confusing though is in my gut when I hear about all this, mm. I've always heard about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies prior to the whole art world involvement in the last few weeks that we've, you know, has come to our attention. I've always heard about it from very wealthy individuals. So people that are either art advisors who are working with super wealthy individuals or multi-millionaires, I would say, even billionaires. You know, in the art world, we have access at times to these very wealthy individuals. And it's often from those sources that I've heard about Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. I've never been anything to do with any cryptocurrency because I don't understand it. So is, is there a kind of weird thing about this whole cryptocurrency that's quite inaccessible to the everyday person? It doesn't seem that or democratic or that… Or is that? Is it designed to sort of create wealth for wealthy people,
3: which in turn would mean that it's quite an imbalance of power? I think that it definitely has that risk. And uh, I, I think there are two aspects to it. So from, I suppose from a cryptocurrency perspective, you yes, there is, you know, right now to, to buy Bitcoin, you've got to have around $60,000 sitting around to buy one Bitcoin, you know. And that's that. so therefore, that is the preserve of, you know, very yeah. wealthy people. And you've got people like, you know, Elon Musk and other, you know, very... Uh, wealthy billionaires mm-hmm. who are either buying it personally or they're putting it onto their company balance sheets. And then you've got, you know, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, all these other massive financial institutions coming into the market and looking to acquire Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency to just sit on you know, on behalf of their clients and maybe as a, a way of helping to regulate the system, but certainly getting involved with it in which I don't think it's quite clear how they're going to get involved, but they are getting involved. So certainly there is that element. But some of the cryptocurrencies, you can buy one Ripple, for example, for, you know, like the equivalent of 50 cents. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily huge investment for every single one of those cryptocurrencies. And I think that what's also interesting is that cryptocurrency has become really popular in many jurisdictions and countries where their national currencies aren't particularly stable. So in South America and in Africa in, in different parts of the world where they can't necessarily rely on their own currency for remaining sta- stable because of inflation or any other reason. So they are looking at cryptocurrency as a way of of allowing them to, to transact and hold their currency in a more stable way. And at the same time, you've got people who haven't been able to have access to a bank account, been able to open up a crypto wallet and then hold a cryptocurrency. And so they are suddenly accessing a financial system which they couldn't previously access because they weren't able were didn't qualify to open up a bank account or whatever. But what happens when you don't have access to a computer, say, what happens
2: when you don't have access to the education to understand how cryptocurrency even works, which would cut out a huge proportion of society? And and to me, it seems even if you think about, I don't know, like I've been looking in the last few weeks because of the death of Sarah, the the woman in London, like at intersectional feminism, for example, just on another topic, but it does kind of relate to this in the sense of, um, you know, social background, you know, like race, like... Or all of these different issues that can impact your education access or, or you know, social any circumstances, access. Yeah. Any access. And, and if you think about lockdown where children at schools, even in here in Margate or London, who don't have an iPad or don't have a computer at home, that then weren't able to participate in education, like surely it is isn't that equal as a system. It doesn't I mean, yeah, well, even I if the agree. ideas are, it just seems quite odd. To me. I agree.
3: And I think that it is, um, I think it, it presents all these problems and challenges. And, you know, and actually, if you if you look at how, the, how governments and central banks are trying to approach this, they are also looking at um, cryptocurrency and looking at how they regulate it and the challenges it presents to, you know, individuals and society as a whole, and also the way the government functions even. Because, you know, think about it, if you've got Bitcoin... Is the, let's say Bitcoin, take for the example, it becomes, you know, there are articles for people saying, oh, Bitcoin's going to suddenly flip over and it's going to become the, the default currency globally. You'd think, well, is it? I mean, maybe it will, maybe it won't, who knows? But what if, it, just say, in a kind of crazy world, it does, yeah. what does that mean? What does that represent? Does that mean that, you know, because if, if, if a government can't control the main finance, the, the main currency that's operating within a country, you know, they can't control and pull the set of levers that they can ordinarily. They can't do what they're doing right now. They can't pull those, you know, those the, the way they can't, I suppose, uh, do, you know, kind of manage the way that people uh, access funds and the way that companies are supported. And that, I think, challenges the very fabric of society. You know, if you can't tax in the way that you do at the moment because the currencies are not traced in the same way, then, you know, how do you? allow society to function the way we all expect it to.
2: And to be honest, it's lasted longer than many people, many critics of Bitcoin. It was almost seen as like comic in a way, like five years ago, say. So, I just find it, you know. it's like our, our generation with it's TikTok.
1: Lasted. It's like, I'm like, I don't get TikTok. And then I'm like, then everyone <laughs> younger is like, you are an old nan. And I'm like, you don't get it. And I feel like, you know, we are kind of putting our feet going, going like, no, this shouldn't be happening. This isn't right. But then everyone younger is going, what are you talking about? This is the world now. We've grown up with the internet. You had an existence without internet. They don't know what that is. This is just normal. But for me... So let's get on to the art stuff now. So we've had a history of the Bitcoin. We've had a history of cryptocurrency. So that moves on. Now, for me, it feels like we've gone into this world now where these cryptocurrency Bitcoin things are numbers on screens, which really, in reality, is what we all work through bank accounts. We don't sit with cash under our beds anymore. Everything is kind of like just numbers on the screen. But these nifties, NFT, non-fungible tokens, which we'll explain what that means... For me, our visual bitcoins are visual cryptocurrency that you buy this Bitcoin for sixty thousand dollars, but with it you get this image attached, which is unique to you. It can't it's traced to you, it belongs to you. So that certifies or uh mints as is a term that bitcoin to you. Am I on the right track with that?
3: You absolutely are. So you know, you've got the non-fungible token, they've got two parts of it. Non-fungible means like it's unique. It's the only thing which is, you know, it's it's the only one in existence. The token is the, is the kind of the bit that says you own it. Right. So you've got the, the non fungible token and the artwork that that points to exists actually somewhere else, but you've had it minted. And then you buy it through one of these platforms like Nifty Gateway or OpenSea or Rarible or a whole host of others. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, Foundation, Super Rare, there are, there are a number of them. And there are more coming, I'm sure. Um, and actually, the platforms and the interaction of the platforms, I think is something we should come on to later. But that's exactly it. You're buying an NFT, which represents your ownership of a particular digital artwork. And that artwork exists, mm-hmm. you know, in a digital form. And it only exists in a digital form. I mean, you could have a real world manifestation so, of that. Yeah, it's if,
1: unique, isn't it?
3: It is unique. Yeah. Well, it is unique unless you choose unique. for it not to be, in the, uh, and the artist chooses for it not to be, in the way that you could have a unique painting or you could have a limited edition. So there are two forms of, from a contract perspective, there are two forms of NFTs. You've
1: got the original Andy Warhol, and then Andy Warhol made an edition of it. So you've got the original one, which is uh, unique, can't be duplicated, but then he's chosen to duplicate it, but you know they're an edition, and then 300 people have access to that, and they're signed. And That's then exactly. they are signed and numbered yeah signed and numbered, and they are they belong to you, but in this world, you know like if we're talking about you know we are, I'm sort of relating it to flipping art, so our, our art our, our collectors or people who get access to really hot young artists that they get at primary pricing, then they stick it straight in auction at secondary pricing, and they get this money back. This feels like the online version of that, but it's being made by for me artists a lot of it I'm really struggling to like. I mean, it feels like I'm going to Camden Market in the 90s or trying to buy a magic eye poster from Athena. There doesn't the, the, the actual quality of the artworks for me, and I'm sure I'm going to get shot down, are not great. They feel quite basic. Like there's a, there's a screen grab of a tweet or there's a meme of like a rat with a top hat with a rainbow coming out of his bum climbing a tree. Lovely, but I don't understand why that's... I can't, in my head, I can't put the value on that.
3: I think I think talking about the individual artists, first of all, I think that that will will evolve and, you know, different artists will emerge from this from this world that we're going to all think, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is incredible. These are the ones that the art world really thinks is fantastic. But I think there's actually some real merit in the ones that are already producing this right now. Some of these artists, you know, are producing and creating work, which is visually very different from the things that we've maybe experienced you know, across the, you know, in galleries or in museums and all those sorts of places. And I think it's really good. It's challenging us, it's challenging us and making us look at things differently. And some of the work is actually really interesting. You know, yes, some of it really isn't, but there are some really uh, great, there's some really great stuff that's being produced. And I think the way that it's being produced and who's producing it is also really interesting. I mean, some of them are really young. I mean, they're like 18 year old kids that are Oh, I shouldn't say kids, should I? I, mean, I don't know. 18-year-olds who are Young making adults. this work. Young adults, exactly, making this work. And they're, and they're responding to the world around them. They live in this space. They grew up in this space. They're making work that comes from this world and then they're selling it you know, on these platforms to other people who have also grown up in a, and, and been born out of this world. So, for, I think for them, it feels probably incredibly natural. It is just a way of existing, you know, the way I think it's, you know, if you think about how, what Google did to libraries and, you know, information and encyclopedia sources, it completely dematerialized that. You think about what, and everyone thought, you know, no, I don't think anyone would have fully imagined what, what Google and the power Google could have had. You know, Facebook completely dematerialized the way we socialize. You know, I think that cryptocurrency is dematerializing in the way that currency operates. And I think that what this is doing is dematerializing the way that we all imagine and interact with art. And that okay. is fascinating. Question then. The hierarchy of
1: the art world, which we all fight against, is that you know someone who's outside of art is self-taught, isn't seen as valuable uh, as a commodity. As This is talking about a commercial art market. As someone who has trained at the Royal Academy, for example, or the Royal College of Art and Slade. Yeah. Or and the-
2: although we're all campaigning to change that, and ex- it is changing. Exactly.
1: <laughs> But there is like a quality hierarchy within the art world that really supports yeah. the system now, with these artists that are creating these nifty artworks how where is the quality at and who decides what what the quality is of that the hierarchy of like where they come from what what their craft is where they're or is it literally anyone can do this anyone can get involved, which I love like the, the, the that it feels like outsider artists self taught that feels like Wonderful, but is that is that the case? Is there anybody the in this, this world that is is deemed like the cause or the warhol of nifties?
3: I think not yet, but they're coming. I think certainly the Beeple result was just you know incredible, and I think hit records that none of no one expected it to, to reach. You know, it's the th- it's now the third highest price paid for an artwork by a living artist. I mean, that is quite extraordinary. Uh, you know, he doesn't have the, the track. Record what were the other two? Is, Number one is Coons. Number two is is David Hockney, and then Coons again in number four. So in between those, you've got you've now got Beeple. You know, Beeple doesn't have the you know, the kind of the, the the kind of the the narrative that kind of supports you know, Coons and Hockney, and and then further down that list, I think you've got you know you have Lucian Freud a, a little bit below that, and that's you know these are artists that we're all really familiar with that you wow. know you'd expect to be reaching those prices, you know, but. I don't think that necessarily we should be here to judge what people are willing to pay for these things. And at the same time, I think we should be very willing to open our minds completely to what this, the artists that are producing work right now, the, the people that are buying the work and what they are looking for is very interesting because they're generating a whole new way of consuming and viewing and engaging with art. And they're funding, by buying this work, they're funding a whole new way of, operating i suppose the art market will can be completely transformed by this i just don't think we fully understand what will emerge from the foundations that have been laid as a result of you know this kind of recent flurry of nft that's that's scary isn't it is that scary for
1: us is that scary for artists is scary for like visual arts galleries museums is that something that everyone's now slightly panicking about
3: Yeah, of course, it's scary. Any major change is going to be scary for people. It's going to challenge everyone's ideas of of what exists right now. I mean, I think we've been talking about some of these issues for years in the art world. You know, how can we break down certain structures? How can we make it fairer? How can we change things in the way that, you know, the gatekeepers maybe are a bit more challenged than they, they are currently? Well, this kind of does that if you allow it to. The technology in itself kind of lays the foundation, a platform for that, because it's decentralised. But the technology itself is not going to create a revolution. It's not going to create a democratic approach to the art world that we want it to. People have to do that. So actually, you know, on the one hand, yes, there is probably an argument to say that you you want to see some more curatorial, you know, opinion in some of this. Yes, you want to yes, see I guess that's what I'm maybe saying. Maybe a bit more of an edit yes. is yeah. another way of putting yeah. it. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And there are certain platforms that are doing that to some extent. They are inviting artists onto the platform. They are curating in the loosest sense what goes on their platform. And others, you know, aren't doing that at all. But I think there's a double-edged sword where that's concerned, because I think that's really exciting that you can revolutionise all these things, like the complete democratisation of the art world and much wider than that. But, you know... And what you're doing by doing that is you're challenging those sort of traditional gatekeepers of who says what's what and what isn't. And, you know, we all are part of that. We're all involved with the art world. And, you know, and it functions largely rather well, but it doesn't serve everyone within the ecosystem fairly. And I think that what this allows, you know, every all participants to do is to participate in a more fair way. And that comes out to the gatekeepers is one aspect of it. You challenge that 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 structure. But at the same time, you can make sure there's a fair distribution for artists and creators generally and the people involved with that, You know, not just at the point of sale, but forever. So the contracts that are put into place to create an NFT, those, those contracts allow for royalties to be written into the contract at the very beginning. So every time that an artwork is sold, that the original creator... Gets a percentage wow. if that is a, if that's written in. So every resale of a, of an NFT, if it is written into the contract, and most of them choose to have this, obviously, they they would get and it seems to be 10% is roughly what people are choosing to go with, every time it's resold, they will get 10% of that wow. resale value. That's incredible.
1: Well, that's the opposite of art flipping, isn't it? Where the, the artist doesn't get anything from that sale. No, but they do
3: it. now, because there's, there's an artist resale right in there the is. UK. But it's a small amount, isn't it? It's a small amount. It's an average of 4%. And it's and it's capped at something like €12,500. Euros. And so, you know, this isn't capped. You know, if you an NFT 10% royalty isn't capped, it's automatic as well. I mean we can all imagine how a painting gets sold or an artwork gets sold. I mean, how do you track all of that and the no, ARR and how it's paid and how it's given it back yeah. to the artist? And, you know, I think that what's really amazing about this is-, is Isn't
2: ARR to do with the, the lifetime copyright? So if it's like, I don't know what it is, is it 100 years or 70 years after someone dies? There's 70 still a copyright? years in the UK, but it varies 70, around the world. Yeah. yeah. So with, with this kind of, um, you know, uh, NFT kind of uh, 10%, would that be infinite? Or is that also limited to a kind of copyright
3: Yes, exactly. Most people write it in. I mean, each each contract could be different. That's the other key thing, you know. And that's where a lot of these standardized contracts that being used at the moment might not be right for the more sophisticated art structures. Or you know, you know, you're working with a gallery with an artist, and you're putting out to a group of collectors. You might need. That's where, you know, certainly what I'm working on at the moment with two or three collectives where the actual standard contracts don't quite work, the, the structures aren't quite right because in one particular case we're choosing to not only give a percentage to the original creator but also to the original collaborators to help make that happen because you need certain other skills to make that artwork come to life. It's not just the artist, but it's also the people who produce that work and edit that work and then, and then the other aspect of it which we're doing which is really interesting is putting percentage of all future sales to a a public institution. So that's what I think is also really powerful is that you can build into the original, you know, the foundation of an artwork. So let's say, I don't know, you know, we, we all, the three of us sit down and we decide that we want to create a collective and we get an artist involved and we make this fantastic piece of work, which is sold, you know, in a series, let's say, and there are three of them sold and they all go to individual collectors. But every time that gets sold, there's a royalty paid back to the original, the original artist. There may be another percentage that goes to other collaborators that help make that happen. But let's say 10% would also always go to the Tate, for example. That's written into the, into the contract. Wow. It's
1: a smart contract. Could it, can it be a charity thing as well? Like-
3: it can be. And I think that's what's exciting. It has the power to have to transform wow, yeah, philanthropy like within the art world. And it's automated.
0: Yes, exactly. All of
2: these ideas, like kind of blue sky thinking, if you like, all sound great, of course. But the thing is that confused me is that when an artist, say, like Beeple, you know, suddenly is worth all this money and you have never heard of him, it doesn't mean that he's not an artist. But certain people last week I was talking to were kind of like, but how do we know that's art? Is it art? And therefore, is it just money laundering? Because it's a way of like putting money into, you know, this kind of, agreement or something and it's not really art like are people just being tricked if there's no regulation it's a really complicated it's about thinking
1: i know it is but it's about thinking outside the box we're in we're at this stage in history now where we're living in the future we've all been locked down the pandemic everything has become, like, museums have been closed, you haven't been able to go to galleries, and suddenly it's like we're making this art online. We're living our lives online. So why is this not as important as what we're seeing in front of our eyes in every day? Because yeah. what we're seeing on the screen is as important. Suddenly you're on Zoom all the time, you're on FaceTime. That's real, but that isn't real in itself, you know?
2: But the reason, like, we've all started talking about it was largely because Christie's got involved, who are an organisation that are incredibly traditional, you know, and sort of respected and have this kind of gravitas in a way, particularly in the secondary world, you well, know. They're opinion formers. Here. Yeah, they are. And also it's kind of, uh, it's got kind of credibility, has not it? Yeah. Mm. And they're meant to be transparent as an organization. So for them to get involved shocked a lot of people, I think, because like one of my friends was saying that, um, you know, the FBI has shut down certain websites or, or like, you know, if you think about Silk Road and the controversies around that, like, is Which it, is a black I mean, market
1: uh, trading, like dark web, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and but there's all this kind of murkiness to it as well. So on one hand, you've got this wonderful, you know, progressive kind of free thinking and free to creativity and breaking down the the game the the doorkeepers yeah. but at the same time it's all mired in. But isn't that the art world or, rob
1: don't aren't we things? exist in well, an art yeah. world where we yeah, have all is. the murky stuff where it is all kind of insider trading speculating flipping yeah. everything getting this artist prices up but it's all just everyone also, against pr- each other
2: immense and, privilege you know uh, benefiting the the wealth yeah. exactly. of, of wealthy think, people you know i
3: think if we if you take a sort of more sort of generational forward thinking attitude to this you can you can Yes, you can have these utopian ideas and you can think that, oh, my goodness, wouldn't it be amazing if all this actually happened? And in reality, much of it won't happen. And what we're talking about today probably will be very different tomorrow. But what I think it, it, it does is it allows you to if you can identify where the potential issues are, you can then work out how you how you kind of overcome them. And a lot of what you're talking about, you know, the kind of potential illegality around these things, those things are that's what that's what real life Law enforcement and, mm. and and the justice system is there for. You know, just because it happens online doesn't necessarily mean that, that it doesn't that, that our governments and our justice system doesn't have you know kind of jurisdiction over those transactions. And that, what's really interesting in the way that these these uh, contracts operate and the way that the blockchain operates is that it is actually transparent. We can all see what's happened. So if I go on and look at an NFT. That sold yesterday, and let's say it's been put on the open marketplace again on the same platform, and has been resold. You can see who has bought it. Yeah, th- all the transaction history is there mm. and will always be there. So, yeah, but can you track? Can you trace who that person is, though, if it's under a pseudonym yes. or a well, made-up name? That's a big part of it, and I think that's what a lot of the a lot of authorities are looking at. It's like looking at how do you get transparency into a world which is seemingly completely transparent and traceable but at the okay. same time it's a series of numbers that doesn't mean anything to anyone and that i think is is, is definitely a challenge and that's why christie's when they when you know, the way they did it was to ensure that you know if you're going to bid you had to follow certain procedures in the way that you would any other bid bidder would have to and you had to transact through, I think you had to use Coinbase and you had to use Ethereum and all these other conditions that were around the sale, I suppose to mitigate Mm. as many of those risks as possible. I mean, and I think we to be careful, I don't think anyone could accuse people of having done anything that's not, you know, completely above board, because I think that would be, you know, I I don't think I don't think that no, we should assume that everyone that's involved with this world is uh, you know, doing the you know kind of has got some kind of ulterior motive. No, 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 no. Inevitably, though, that is. No, you're right. It's it's, it's just like
2: a, it's just like the whole world. It's like the real world, isn't it? The, it's yes, the same exactly. thing in yeah. a way. And and also, people like the the art world in the past year has had to uh, apply exactly. these new know your client um, exactly. regulations for the whole of Europe, even including the UK, even after we left Brexit, to make sure that any payment over eight thousand euros, you know who your client is, you have their passport, you have their address, you have their utility bills. And, and Christie's obviously follow that regulation for all of their sales, regardless of whether it's Bitcoin or, or whatever it is. I was
3: just going to say, what's fascinating is actually the people that did bid on that. There were 22 million people watching that sale on Christie's website yesterday. 91% wow. of the people that bid were completely new to Christie's. 91%. So, you know, we're talking about this in, you know, the, the framework that we already understand. But this is a whole, you know, the, the, the creators, the collectors, the world that's watching it. it is all entirely new. So, you know, I think that what's fascinating is that it's been born out of this you know, crypto world. It's not something that, you know, we can almost retrospectively apply our own ideas and uh, structures around because it is very new and the people that are operating within it operate very differently. And so like if for example the 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 underbidder yesterday was uh, here he missed out you know, by a quirk of a technical quirk within the Christie's system which he went to Twitter to talk about and then Christie's responded wrote to him and then he put it up on up online. And actually what it did was highlight the fact that the technology that's being used by Christie's he challenged it he was like actually I think we should be using blockchain because then it's all completely clear it's all completely trans- uh, tr- um, transparent and you know these problems wouldn't happen and I think so you know it's interesting these new people coming into the market are making us maybe think about not just the art but the way that we transact with it wow
2: yeah they're, they're sort of reforming the existing structures wow. yeah exactly. was
3: Christie's
1: was Christie's like listening to that or were they like no no we like what we've got
3: <laughs> they sort of, I think they slightly brushed it off. But, you know, I don't think, I don't, I, I uh, and, and he was very gracious. He was like, I accept that this is how you operate Christie's. It's fine. I'll find the next big artist and I'll move on. But I think, tip, you know, tip from me, yeah. I think this is how you could, you know, change your systems. He was very gracious. He did it very well. But actually, it, it raised some really interesting points.
2: And one really quick question before Russell moves on um, is this, is the value, sort of a risk, it, as in, like, I know it would be anyway, if you bought a Warhol at a certain price, it might drop another year later or something. So is there a risk, a bit like you were talking about these huge jumps, which are unusual with cryptocurrencies, the way they can jump 10% or 50%, is there a risk that person who invested all that money, or oh, sorry, all, all that cryptocurrency
3: could, could have a huge loss from this purchase? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think volatility is, is almost inherent to the system at the moment. I think it just, it, 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 you know, I think that no one should go into this with the without their eyes wide open, it's certainly not for the faint-hearted. I, I I don't think that, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. It's going to take time for them for it to mature, and it will take time for you know kind of other artists, maybe more established artists or new artists that have not yet been discovered to kind of to you know come onto the scene to allow the the the, the kind of this this particular form to of of art to, to kind of mature and allow then the market to sort of stabilize a little bit more mm. you know I, I don't know who who can possibly say whether people's thing is going to be worth 69 million tomorrow having paid that yesterday i mean it, as we said earlier it's not like you know Hockney or uh Lucian Freud where you can just point to a whole other load of data points and say you know yeah. these are other paintings or whatever or sculptures yeah, but, that are sold
2: but there are artists like Damien Hirst who are now accepting cryptocurrency apparently Absolutely. Okay. Yes. so there's there's leading artists you know of the day who are now going to be getting involved with cryptocurrencies when they weren't before so that's also interesting I'd love to see well, exactly. Hockney with
1: his iPad drawing starting to charge <laughs> well, exactly. cryptocurrency yeah. for them
3: <laughs> I love it I would love it if Hockney starts uh, incredible bitcoin. Hockney bitcoin but, you know the guy like the guy who bought Beeple. He he's now he's come out saying he thinks it's not you know 69 million was a was a was a bargain. He thinks it's worth 1 billion. And he's now put it into this thing. He's now re, he's fractionalizing the artwork essentially because he he's been bought by this thing called, you know, Metapurse, which is a it's a sort of a fund for NFTs and you can buy a token for that fund which allows you to um yeah, actually, I'm saying guy. It might not even be a guy. It's, it's, well,
1: it's, but, his but, name is Metakovan, as he's come out. That's his pseudonym. Yeah, and he's pseudonym. described on Instagram as a crypto native, and he holds the largest known... NFT collection in the world right now. Exactly. So he sounds like someone who's got a lot of money. But who sets the prices on them? That's the thing. Is that I've been going through uh, the Nifty uh, websites. I've been going through MakeSpace, and they're all different prices. Who is it? The artist says my work is worth this, or is it the people who run the websites selling these artworks that that's what you should market your work at?
3: It's largely the artists. They are choosing what they put into their. When you okay. when you mint a work, okay. when you mint as an artist, when you mint your your NFT you choose the terms that you put into that contract and you can set the price and you can change the price as well. It's one of the things you can continue to change because the key thing about NFTs is once you've created it, it's there forever. You cannot change it, which is obviously exciting, but it's also a challenge because, you know, you've got, you want to make sure you get it right the first time. And so you can set the price, but you can also change yeah. the price throughout. You can either have it available immediately for a particular price or you can set it as an auction and that will allow some flexibility in the way you control You know the way you market your work but there's also in the background there are galleries and there are curators who are involved with this world already and are to some extent guiding artists in the way that they want to market their work what they're going to put out there which platforms they're going to go on to and how they you know what they what price they attach to it so i think i think that will definitely change as well over time as more people get involved and how, how hard is it to apply
2: to be an artist? Because one of my other artist friends was like, "I don't like the fact that you have to apply to these websites to sort of register yourself as an artist. Like, what a ludicrous." Same kind as of a collector,
1: idea. I guess, isn't it? You have to register for yeah. to be a collector to buy the work. <laughs> I guess this is all trying to. You know, track it down, be part of this blockchain, this DNA yeah, chain that
2: we're all in. Yeah, but, but what if you don't get approved as an artist? though
3: Well, I think Rob, that's really right. You know, it's like you know, actually, why are these platforms emerging? They're emerging because the the world is so complex. Because it's really, you know, a lot of it's just a string of load of string of numbers, and you've got to get your head around. You have know, wallets and cryptocurrency, and where you know all these contracts and everything else, and none of it is in plain English, which goes against entirely the way you know kind of the movement of the legal world generally over the last twenty years. So you know, how how have they, how is that being resolved? Well, all these platforms are being, you know, launched. You know, whether it's Foundation or Nifty Gateway or any of the others, to make it understandable and easy to meet your work, to put your work up there, and to make it available for sale and easy for people to acquire it. But of course, though, what that's doing is while that, you know, while we're on one hand we're saying it's breaking down all the old structures and challenging the way that we operate, but at the same time you're putting in place all those things. And who are behind all these platforms? You know, there are some that have got curators and and everything else involved which is great and then there are others which we don't quite know who's making those decisions it feels
1: like Bridgerton you know at the end when you're like who's been writing all all the all these gossip columns and it's like it's her you didn't know it's me
2: but a, yeah but also that's a good point though about male and female and trans and lgbtq and non-binary and like who are these people like is it because some people are saying that it's kind of like computer gaming which historically was seen as a kind of male domain almost like so is that a negative thing if these these structures are being built just by men do you know what i mean like maybe they're not though maybe they're being built by women i don't know but but like
3: how is that equal do you know what i mean i think I think, there, I think definitely your point about gamification of all this stuff is definitely, you know, there's a, there's an element of that involved with this, I'm absolutely sure. And you know, maybe it is more male dominated at the moment. I, I I've seen some criticism online that's mainly you know, kind of, there is a there, there could be a race element to this as yeah, well. Exactly. Maybe that is the case, but I think there's actually an opportunity where that is concerned, and not just but, but for all for marginalized groups generally. You know, I think there's a real potential for you know, I'm working with one particular collective at the moment, which is working with LGBT artists who are not they're in countries where it is illegal to be homosexual, they so they're producing their work, they see this as a huge opportunity to be able to. To be able to make their work available to a massive audience, and to be able to collect other artists as well and hold them in a in a in a, in a digital collection essentially, without having running the risk of being criminalised in their own countries. So I think that has a real potential and a way to really kind of lift up some marginalised groups. And I hope that will be. Some of the opportunity that is that is born out of this. I guess
2: system. the only thing, though, is whether like an artist like Damien Hirst can accept yeah. cryptocurrency because he can already put food on his table on yeah. a really basic level. He owns his house, I, I expect. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, but if you're an artist that's like paying rent and can't even afford to pay your rent, how do you then get involved with? You know what I mean? Like that—that's the only a, the thing I find confusing
3: at the moment. Who well, does pay a
1: fee to make the work? Do you? you do not have to pay a fee to market it? You just
3: no. But, well, you do. To some extent, you have to pay a fee to mint it, and that could mint, be yeah. you know. And it could be $100 and to get that a or whatever. And you have to have a computer
2: and all that stuff. Like
3: that. Yeah, exactly. You've got to have all the equipment, as, as Rob said earlier. And you've got to be able to you pay to mint your work, all the gas fees and everything else. And that that could be, you know, a sizable amount of someone's weekly right, monthly right, right. income. Her,
1: her work, the additions. Yeah, and so plus right.
3: you were talking about other, other
2: people collaborating with you maybe to do the technology side of it. If it's a moving video or something, you might need someone to help you realise that. So I just think it's quite, it does seem at the moment to me that you have to be quite well off in order to even be involved with this.
3: I think think there probably is an element of that. But I I, I think that yes it probably there probably is certainly an element of that and maybe that will that that will be addressed as they change the technology to allow some of these transaction fees to be reduced because i think that will allow more people to enter the market but it doesn't mm. you're right there's technology issues which will be exactly. which will and limit up, yeah. certain people but if you can yeah i mean you really want to democratize this you need to make sure that everyone has access to 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 the technology that is required to do it and i think that there's a uh,
1: exactly, you know, which was the, the
3: founding principle of the internet as well, of course. Well, exactly, Tim Berners-Lee, as he's you know, kind of to, to open it up. And I think, you know, to your point about the the you know the money to, that the artists are going to receive, can they afford to receive cryptocurrency, or you know, run the risk that the, what they receive one day might be, you know, by the time they've come to change <laughs> it into their actual into their bank accounts, it's suddenly halved in value. I mean, you know, that that is a risk. And it's and it's interesting to yeah. note that Christie's they accepted. Cryptocurrency yesterday as a bidding currency, but their buyers, their, their commission was payable within fiat currency. They didn't accept cryptocurrency for their fees, their commission. So I think that's interesting. You know, I think oh, so
2: Christie's themselves weren't accepting it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. So I think you know maybe maybe that will change over time. Maybe you'll be able to choose whether it is you receive your payment in cryptocurrency or with you know within dollars or pounds or whatever it might be. That could possibly change, I think that 's a technological thing rather than necessarily a barrier, yes,
2: okay mm. yeah
1: all right, so this this marriage between art and tech, how does this affect you, Simon, because you are an art advisor, curator to private and corporate collections globally, art collections, and you 're saying there you 've got your collectors like asking you all the questions, how do I buy? how do I get involved? What should I be doing? How is this changing the landscape for you as someone as an art advisor predominantly? Advising people to collect art, and for institutions and private and personal collections.
3: I think the uh, I think the biggest thing is is, is is helping people understand it initially, and helping people understand what the challenges are, and what the opportunities are, and making sure well, that what all my the clients I'm speaking to at the moment. I'm doing a whole series of these Zoom talks for different collectors all around the world, and what they what they want to understand is how do they go about doing it, how are they how do they how are they best placed to respond to the market when they find something they really like because it may not be something they're going to they're not going to just jump in and buy the first thing that you know springs up on their screen they're going to take time they're going to learn about the market they're going to explore which artists are producing work and you know ones that they want to you know either add to their existing collection or build a whole new other collection alongside it whether that is a you know a nifty collection and I think that's really fascinating so uh, helping them kind of First, understand that, that what what the technology looks like, what it allows them to do. Then put in all the structures in place to help them, you know, be well placed to to, to acquire the work when they find the thing they're looking for. But then really understanding. What they want to achieve with their collection—is it a standalone collection of digital art, or is it something which complements what they already have? And then there's all the you know the questions around display. You know, I think people have to really get their heads around the idea that you know this isn't necessarily a tangible piece of work you're going to suddenly you know kind of be able to hang on your wall. It is like digital art of you know that we've all experienced sound art, video art, performance. You know, the the concepts of of as a collector, of, of how you interact with that work and how you add it to your collection, of course, there's similar questions and you just got to understand, you know, get your head around what you, how, what you expect from you know, this piece of work and then how you want to have that fit within the landscape of your collection. An interesting point about nifties as well is that the artwork doesn't actually sit within the nifty. So within the NFT, I should say. It doesn't, the, the, the NFT is the token that points to the artwork. So you're, token your nft mm. sits on the on the blockchain as a as a series as a you know as a record yep. of your ownership your id actual the actual artwork let's say it's a high res jpeg of a particular thing that sits somewhere else largely usually it sits on a separate server
1: somewhere else why why are they not together
3: because the, the blockchain is largely like a interlinked database is maybe the best way to think of it and it's a record like the title deeds to your house they sit somewhere else and they point to your house so you have a title deed to your house that points to your house and says Russell Tovey owns this house Rob owns this house and it is here it's located here and it looks like this and it shows the transactions
2: yeah, and the same with like leasehold or freehold. Exactly. And like I, I, I had a guy who's an art advisor, um, Robert Norton, who approached us about making such kind of blockchain certificates for, say, counter editions prints, yeah. and that if you sell 300, edition of 300, that each of those would also come with a blockchain certificate, which points to the physical print. Exactly. He's been talking to us for years, but we've never taken so it's it It's much like maybe that. So, you know, your physical
3: happen. print exists somewhere else, um, but it points to that. So, But I think the, I mean, the difference in the real world, if you've got a blockchain certificate that points to a real limited edition print that you have hanging on your wall, you know where it is. You've got this, you know, this other digital art sitting elsewhere on maybe a third party server or maybe on the server of the platform that you bought it through. And so you're relying on the robustness of that server to be able to access forever your artwork. So I think there are some issues to be resolved there. I think we've got to look at how do you actually hold it? Are you entitled to hold it offline? Are you entitled to hold it on a hard drive? You know, and also there's a technological issues to it. It's like, you know, if people bought video art in the early 1980s and they bought it on a Betamax, do they have a right to convert it to VHS or DVD or whatever else? So, you know, I think those things...
2: And that's been a huge huge discussion for, for years now, for about the last 10 years since I've been working in the art world. Loads of collectors who collect video art, that's one of their major concerns is about the transition between different media. It's a really important thing, VHS to, you know.
3: Absolutely. And drive, you know, you hard drive, need to drive I, And that's what the, some of these contracts don't do. A lot of these contracts are standardized. So you need to kind of, you know, really understand what you're buying and what rights you have as the buyer of that work. You know, um, can you recreate it in a different format as the technology changes? Are you allowed to have, mm. you know, a, a kind of a, 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 the way you store it? Does that need to be you know, held in a particular way? And I think that the other issue is with the platforms. At the moment, some of the NFTs that you buy, you could only they are minted on a particular platform. They're hosted on a particular platform and acquired through a particular platform. And then you are only able to resell them through that platform. And I think that is a limitation right. which needs to be overcome because imagine if you bought an artwork from a gallery, a painting from a one gallery, and for, a, you know, for all of these wonderful utopian ideas we're talking about, the only way you can ever resell it is back through that gallery to the clients of that gallery. So, you you know, you suddenly are very you know, narrow in what you can do. So I think that needs to be resolved as well. They need to be much more transferable across different platforms. And I think you also have to be able to do the contract to understand that if that, Platform, let's say it's Nifty Gateway or Foundation, for whatever reason, doesn't exist in five years' time. You know what happens then? You yeah. know, do you, you? know Yes, you've got your blockchain NFT, but your artwork might have been hosted by them. You know, where, where does where is it now? Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: as a Nifty Nostradamus, which we're going to coin you as uh, Mint, you as actually, um, you, if you were seeing this coming have you been collecting yourself and are you one of these pseudonyms that now are sitting on millions and millions and millions of nifty artworks
3: i i do own a series of nfts yes when did you start Um, collecting them um relatively recently within the year within the last year but i've been interested in digital art for a long time you know because i think the potential that it offers is really interesting you know i surround myself by paintings and sculpture but i also love the idea of what technology can bring to the art world you know as a curator i've hosted many exhibitions which incorporate video art and performance and all those things and to me it just feels like you know why would you want to close your mind or your 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 collection to those things so yeah i do collect nfts and what's interesting is nfts aren't just art as well they can they're tokenization of of digital assets crypto assets mm. so you know there are lots of things that you can apply an nft to but yes i do have a small and growing collection of nfts
1: and your your crew that you work with then are, are you advising everyone to get onto this and learn and educate and buy
3: yes with caution right. i think you've got to apply the same principles you'd apply to collecting any piece of art you have first of all got to understand what you, what it is that you're looking at yeah. and you've got to understand what, what you know, who what the artist is about and 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 enjoy and look at the work and really enjoy it of course you apply all the principles you ordinarily would and then, yes, you know, don't get carried away. Don't be silly. Make sure you can only, you know, buy what you can afford, obviously. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, have some fun with it. I mean, encourage anyone to do Well, that. I like
1: what you're saying about working out what the artist is about, though, because, you know, a lot of these are graphic designers. Nothing against graphic designers, but they're not fine artists. No, they're, not. they're people that know how to work, you know, images, Photoshop, or whatever it is on the computer. They're savvy to that, and now they have this clout. They have this, like... Um, um, like weight to their to their practice now through this work how do you how do you sift through and find the guys who are doing serious work and aren't just kind of jumping on this now I think
3: that's interesting I th- you know they're what we're talking about, I suppose, in that context are the artists that we're looking at on screen at the moment and the ones that are getting, grabbing the headlines, the ones like, you know, I don't know, Beeple and CryptoPunks and all those sort of artists that are getting the, you know.
1: Who else is there? Who, name, name, give us some more names.
3: Well, there's a bunch of them. So you've got, you know, did you read about the Banksy that that was burnt? There was a group of people that bought a Banksy print and then they burnt it in a a car park and then filmed that and then sold it as an NFT. And actually they bought the print for like $95,000 or something and then sold it for astronomical fees, sums. And so they made a massive profit. They actually increased the value of that original artwork, which is, well fascinating in itself yeah. and they call themselves pest supply rather than pest control which is the authentication body for banks of course and then there's you know there's uh pack which i think is really interesting pack is doing some yeah, you know, there's some some work that i quite like a lot of his work is is um it's unique rather than multiples and that's quite interesting CryptoPunks is another one that everyone seems to be talking about you know i'm not necessarily speaking to the merits of these individual artists because i think that you know what, you know, what will emerge is going to be more interesting but what they're doing is laying the foundations and I'm curating an exhibition in London and in New York which is, which is going to be very interesting and, and exploring a lot of the artists that are doing things in this area has been fascinating so it's not just the ones that we're talking about oh, wow. getting all the headlines we're looking on screen but it's, it, there are a lot of young artists who are producing work where you're know, born entirely out of this world you know, where their work is you know generative artwork in its you know essence you know it's 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 produced through you know technology you know whether it's, a, a, it's whether it's a painting produced you know digitally or whether it is work that is produced yeah. offline but entirely with the idea that it will end up being nothing and nothing more than a, or nothing more but only a digital manifestation of that work so there are lots of artists doing interesting things so you know Uh, i suppose there's an art uh, an artist in the uk at the moment who's working exclusively producing paintings through the computer through her computer and then there's a another guy who's producing paintings that he is specifically trying to convert you know making them to convert them into digital manifestations so i think that is fascinating they've all got a narrative they've gone through you know kind of art school rigor they've 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 applied all of their life experience living through with well, that see that you know, but that
1: i can get onto that i can understand in my head it, it, it just feels like it feels like anybody can suddenly jump on and they're making something like i can do something take a photograph of a, a can of coke and then put it online it feels like that that then frustrates me and i guess that frustrates a lot of people because it just feels like it's They know a bit more and then they've got in on it.
3: You're right. At the moment, there is a bit of a gold rush, I I think. And people are piling in and people are trying to be a bit opportunistic. And, Mm. you know, we can all be a bit cynical about that. And I think that's why I say with anyone, go in with caution, take your time and make sure that this is not going to go away overnight. Mm. You know, maybe we are seeing a bubble. I mean, possibly we are. It's got all the hallmarks of that. But, you know, that might just see a correction. But I don't think the fundamentals are going to suddenly disappear. And, you know, talking about, you know, which other artists as well, I'm working with a collective called Golden Tail at the moment, which is just such a great name for a collective anyway. And that's a, a filmmaker, a photographer and a sound artist who've all got inc- incredible CVs, done amazing stuff, exhibited at the tape individually in all these other places. But they're producing this fantastic piece of work they've been working on for a period of time, always anticipating that it will be a digital work. And now this has just created the market for them. And I wow. think that's exciting. Really yeah, exciting. That's where I think it will happen.
2: I think you're right, Simon. And I think even if this was a bubble, say, the, the lessons that can be learned about forward thinking and kind of changing your, your approach and the openness that you can have to making digital work. And if you look at people like Data Editions, you know, D-A-A-T-A, yeah. which was set up by David Grin, yeah. and I think backed by Anita Zabadovich, actually. But, but if you look at the list of artists on their website, Um, It's all digital artworks and that they're editions of, you know, different amounts, maybe a hundred, maybe five, maybe 10, I'm not sure of the the numbers. But the artists, they've got like Judy Chicago, Tracy Emin, you know, there's a huge list of artists on there, loads of amazing women artists, um, you know, younger artists like Ed Forniella's, like all all kinds of people are on there and I think that in itself that's been going on for at least I don't know eight years now so that in itself shows contemporary artists are interested in digital art and in the digital realm
3: and maybe it just wasn't
2: it's
1: a generational thing isn't it post-internet art Yeah.
2: yeah
3: Well, yeah. well, like you touched on um, Hockney's iPad drawings earlier. I mean, how incredible yes. that we—they're they're fantastic, and they're very clearly Hockney's work. The fact that he produced them in, on an iPad—I mean, who cares? In many ways, I mean, it's like you know, it's just a, a different medium. And I think that we're going to see many more artists that we all know that are sort of household names producing very interesting work, not just because they, you know suddenly want to make a load of money. That's not the motivation, but it's the potential that this offers. You know, maybe it's just being attracted to the, the different way of being able to share in the kind of upside of these things, not just for themselves, but for the other people and things that causes they believe in, you know, for the the way that it could allow them to create a very different kind of work. I think that is fascinating in itself. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, to me, it feels almost like as revolutionary as the kind of the, the you know, the, the Gutenberg press or, you know, the kind of you know, the way that that changed everything. The, the, what's that? It, it, it Sorry, what's the
1: Gutenberg press? Uh,
3: well, the printing press. So the way that you know the way the, the invention of the printing press. Mm. So the way that information could be disseminated on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. So you know beforehand it was relying so on papers, word of mouth, it? and then Post. suddenly the Gutenberg press or the or the, the, the printing press, mm. you know, automated printing of of books and text, allowed you know information to spread. A, very rapidly across jurisdictions in a way that it never had been able to be done before. And what that also gave rise to, interestingly, was the rise of different languages. So you could have printing in different languages across Europe. And it broke down the systems of the old school elite, where information was and education was controlled by the elite and often Disseminated in Latin, and the, you know, the majority of people couldn 't understand Latin so you had the, you had the, the, the printer press allowed national languages to emerge and then text to be produced in national languages so for more people to access information literacy then uh, uh, emerged, and the idea of authorship became more and more important and then you had the copyright law emerge from that and I think there 's something interesting how, you know, this could be as sim- you know, something similar happening right now where you 're seeing this massive democratization of the art world and in a way that it's allowing uh, uh, many different people to get involved, get involved, but also produce very different kinds of work and it, and it, and it references forever the, the, the author, the originator of that work.
2: And it is interesting, this idea of validity to do with value. So the idea that suddenly digital art is being taken seriously just because something sold for like plus 60 million. Do you know what I mean? And if you think of these younger artists in the past five years, even if you think of someone like Amalia Ullman, who I know was referencing the internet and, you know, all, all that kind of younger generation who a lot of the works might be works filmed on um Instagram or or you know on WhatsApp or or communicating through a website. Like and now maybe because suddenly they're seen that it has like a financial worth, there's been this value put well, on that there
1: Art history, it. isn't it?
2: Which is in a way yeah. just the way humans are, yeah. I guess.
3: People need to feel
2: things have value. Yeah. Yes. And but isn't it great I for
3: those artists that it gives them that opportunity to to yeah. monetize or to get some kind of you know return for their for all their endeavour. I mean I think probably going, finally Finally, finally. exactly. Finally, yeah. this, is, this is going to be taken But serious. also,
2: maybe maybe it will give permission to a new generation yeah. to be able to have space and have exhibitions of this kind of work, which maybe before wouldn't have come. Mm, absolutely. And that's the positive aspect, which I'm into. Yes, yeah, I'm into the creativity of it all. I just want to make sure there isn't dark crap happening yeah, in the yeah, background yeah, yeah. because I, I the idea that you'd be like linked to like human trafficking or something, yeah, yeah, that you would know be what I mean? Really like, it's
3: all just dark, allegedly, of course. Yes. But I think it's really fascinating. You know, the idea that someone, you know, I don't know, Someone who lives in the middle of a city in a relatively small apartment, you know, they could have theoretically a collection of you know five hundred or a thousand artworks yeah, that, that just sits on you know on on their computer and they can kind of display if they want Project to on a them, monitor in the way yeah, one thing each day Absolutely. each hour who knows yeah. but you know I think it's I think the the potential is is huge yeah. and, the, and and so long as people allow themselves to, you know, challenge the 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 downsides and work out solutions to that, then the upside is going to be great. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to look at how other, some artists that we all know today, maybe they would disagree. I know some of the, maybe like Nicholas Party or Louis Hollowell or some of those artists that produce work, which I would say it, it, it kind of has Photoshop
1: yeah, energy to it. Yeah, it does. Yeah.
3: It does, and you know, and it's or even Jamie and Giuliano, yeah, Giuliano, yep. exactly, exactly. You know, and their work is. Yeah, they probably would disagree, and they would say it doesn't necessarily is not referencing that or anything else. But you know, maybe there is a connection there. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is. Maybe that was the earlier form of. Of, of, of Well, yeah, that's the their formative years, isn't
1: it? That's your, that's their, yeah. the, the younger generation. That's their it? visual, aesthetic. visual aesthetic, Digital yeah. aesthetic
2: that's come from that era, yeah. Exactly. That's, well, we're
1: living in the future, yeah. and it feels like that's this is it. art history. But that, that story about Banksy burning the Banksy print and then putting it online really reminds me, like as an art historical reference for that, came to mind is when Robert Rauschenberg got a drawing by Willem de Kooning, and he completely erased it, and then put it in a frame and then made that part of his practice, and he sort of appropriated that. And it's like changing art history and then moving that that dialogue on feels like um re- rebellious but needed
3: I, I agree I agree but I think also it has a real potential for for collaboration as well you know you think about how like um Jasper Johns and and uh, Beckett kind of collaborated on on various projects and and that, that when I was doing the, I created that program, the 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 pin drop program yes. at the Royal Academy for five years, and we had this amazing performance by Lisa Dwan who who read Beckett, and she read the 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 extracts that have been selected and written in response to Jasper John's paintings. Those, you know, that was an amazing collaboration. And I think that that, that digital art has the potential to, to really bring people together for and to produce a whole new bodies of work, which I think would be fascinating. And, you know, we've seen it before and we'll see it again, I'm sure.
2: And also, if you think of something like Michael Craig Martin's, like, Oak Tree with the Glass of Water, mm, yeah. I do feel like digital realm somehow would have a very strong connection to conceptual art. I'm
3: sure there's really genius you know, ways of sound up art. With sound art works completely-
1: incredibly well.
3: It really does. It, yeah. The, the artist I'm working with at the moment, on the, in this collective, is just—it's it's mind-boggling. It's capturing urban sounds and and the the the, 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 the decay of abandoned buildings is just—it's fascinating. And merging that with photography is mm. just, yeah, it's really quite beautiful and very powerful.
1: I think everyone needs to. Yeah. Everyone needs to follow you, Simon. They're all gonna, I thinking you're going to have <laughs> thousands of people sliding into your DMs going, what should I yeah. buy? What do He's I do? You've already got
2: thousands. I noticed loads of organizations like writing in your comments saying, please give us a talk. Please yeah, give yeah, us I a think you're Yeah, gonna, actually, I, I think you're it.
1: going it. to clean hilarious. up. I've
3: got my... what, is your, what is your Instagram, Simon? It is Simon, annoyingly, Simon underscore Oldfield. You know, it, it, so that's, uh, that's my, my Instagram. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's in the
1: blockchain now. You've minted that.
3: i just minted it, Yeah. It's it is interesting. You know, actually, you know, talking about the. Actually, I don't know how technical to get on this, but it is actually. I'm just going to say it. you can cut it out if you like. the The, the, the way that we um, the, why domain names exist is because it resolved a problem that was existing at the early stage of the internet, where like Microsoft.com was a series of numbers like two o two one 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 dot blah, 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 whatever. So they created the domain name system to kind of make it easier for everyone to access the internet, right? So you put into your your webs- You know, put in www.microsoft.com and it goes to the Microsoft website rather than 202.123, blah, blah, blah. What we've got at the moment is a whole range of Ethereum numbers or blockchain numbers or whatever. the con- you know, However your wallet exists, you have a whole load of numbers, string of numbers, 42 of them. That is your unique set of numbers that allows you to buy an NFT, for example. You know, that's really confusing. You've got to get every single digit right. You get it wrong and you lose your money. You lose your NFT. It can get transferred to the wrong wallet and there's no recourse. That's it. So you've got to make sure it's really right. There's a whole load of other, I suppose, infrastructure that needs to be in place for the way that we are all going to interact and and operate in the future. And so one of the things which I've been doing over the last three months is working with some fairly big organizations and galleries helping them understand what they need to do to 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 ensure that they are well placed to be ready for what's coming because there was you know, there's a case that happened years ago where someone just registered like marks and waitrose.com and all these things and of course they came into conflict with the trademarks but they also had problems because they had to wrestle these domain names back from this this you know guy who'd registered all these domain names so that's just one example of you need to have this sort of like a whole catalogue of things in place to make sure that you are well placed to operate within this this world and I I, I, all I can say is there are some really big organizations really well-known galleries that if I just I, just by looking, before, doing my research for this, I was slightly horrified at how they, it's just out there for someone else to take. So, if anyone, if any of the, any big institution is listening or gallery, you know, do give me a call and I'll let you know whether you're one of the people that should be doing things differently. Some of them are really ahead of the game. Some of the galleries are doing all of it. Like who? Like some who? of them. I can't say that because otherwise I'm giving disadvantage to people. I feel like if I say their names, either way, you're giving advantage to one and. You're kind of triggering the others to go and then go and buy up, all, you know, bad actors are going to go and buy up all these other things. Right. it's it's fascinating and it feels like, you know, equally, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just don't feel like I can say any more because if I did, I would just yeah, get in, shot. In trouble. Um, so, yeah,
1: well, we'll talking about curating, right? So we're just going to touch on this quickly. Um, you have curated this incredible anthology of short stories that me and you collaborated on i met you at the start of pin drop and it's kind of like performance art in a way that
2: explain w- what pin drop is though because people don't know what Pindrop so
1: Pindrop is. So pin drop is an organization that simon set up where it's basically reading kids no reading stories to adults like you was read to as a kid and everybody as a kid loved it, like being read to by your teachers yeah. by family members by anyone as an adult, we don't do that. And that's the rise of audio books. That's the rise of podcasts because people mm-hmm. are looking for that voice, that soothing thing in your head you haven't got to think about. Well, Pindrop was developed because adults love to be read to and they weren't. And what Simon did was he was a conduit to bring a performer and a writer together and then bring an audience in and these performances would happen, these happenings. And, uh, I did... and
2: I've been to a few of them with yeah. you, because Russell's been um, an actor, obviously, who's read some of these short stories. So I went to Burberry in central London right. about five years ago, and Russell read a story to all of us, and it was The Turner Contemporary. And then we, yeah, and then we travelled to Turner Contemporary and Margate, but we also went down to Somerset. To... Howser and Worth. Houses and Worth in Bruton, yeah. and we had an amazing weekend where we all stayed there, and it was a real adventure. And you even sold the book, and it was really funny because your first, you've done two books so far, and the first one that came out had Eddie Peake's artwork. Well, it's the
1: same the book, front but it's cover. a it's a paperback and a hardback with
2: yeah, paperback and hardback. But the, the first edition of it, Russell actually signed, and he hadn't even written anything in the book, and it was really funny because all these people were walking up to him after his reading, getting him to sign the book, and I was like, Russ, you're not even in the book, but you then corrected it for the second version of it, the paperback, because Russell actually. She wrote a story
3: he did he wrote an amazing story um called the kiss and uh mm-hmm. i love it it's a really amazing story and uh illustrated by tracy emin the lovely tracy emin so uh, it's, it's a it's a great story and you i think love you, your tracy. debut Legend. fiction right is that right is it your de- it was your debut wasn't it russ i think nothing else it was your debut fiction uh yes yeah right? yeah um, it is an, it's a great story. So no, you can't stop him. Can't stop me. No. It's
2: all your fault. <laughs> He's a great writer.
1: But you curated this book. You got, you paired up artists who would then doing illustration yeah. with every writer. So throughout this book, you have these incredible, as Stephen Fry calls, a dazzling anthology, called. and the book's called A Short Affair. And you paired up contemporary artists like Tracy Emin, Mary Ramson, Eddie Peake, Fanny Perali, they all made unique artworks that went with the stories.
3: Exactly. So Pindrop was was started, um, as you say, to really to bring back the idea of, of, of storytelling, to really get to sit down and to really listen to to a story and to engage with it. And for me, it was all about the union of art and literature. So from 2014, I've curated the Pindrop programme at the World Academy, which is about bringing very well-known authors and actors to the stage who will read sh- a short story in response to the main exhibition programme. And we've had amazing people perform. You know, Stephen Fry, you mentioned, and a whole host of other great writers and actors, including you, of course. Russ. Oh, my God, we went to the one with you, with, with Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn. Yeah, Gwendolyn Christie. Gwendolyn did the exactly. Royal Academy. Gwendolyn I came Christie. to that as well. I forgot about that
2: one. Yeah, she's And Elizabeth Day was there and How
3: to Fail as well. Um, and, yes, and so the book was born out of that. And the idea was that we would find all these great writers, some that we discovered through the Pin Drop programme and the prize that we operate, and then other best-selling writers like, I don't know, Will Self and... Ben Okri and all these other great writers, and those artists were then so writers were paired with artists from the Royal Academy, and they produced artworks in response to those stories. And yes, and the product is um, a short affair, and then the, the hardback is just this with this stunning Eddie Peake cover, which I adore. And then there's the paperback with this very amazing red and blue. Cover, which I think is just brilliant. It was hand painted. You know that that cover was hand painted by this genius at, at the publishing house at Simon Schuster. It's so great, wow. and um, and that's got Russell's story in it with Tracy Emin's illustration. So yeah, that's Pin Drop.
2: Yeah, and we'll we'll list that as well on our on our Instagram so people can Thank uh, follow you. that and buy Thank that you. as well because it's really worth getting. And you've got a series of podcasts as well. I saw like recordings of some of these events. We do <laughs> the- talks. And is Elizabeth Day involved
3: with it? She is, yeah. So I co-founded it with Elizabeth Day, who is... That's what I thought, yeah, yeah, because I love her as well. Exactly, and Elizabeth is also in the book, and she... um and actually going back to sort of the, some of the, the, the way that I've operated in the past and the shows I've curated, she was the first writer in residence that we had. So when we worked with, back in 2012, we moved our gallery from Covent Garden and moved it to, to Mayfair, where we were working in collaboration with Grosvenor Estate. And we were given this incredible building, which is, uh, now matches fashion opposite the Connor on Carlos Place. <laughs> And it's like it's all transformed. I mean completely transformed. always follows always follows art. It always does. I mean, <laughs> we worked so hard. My poor mum, she was there at the front you know for like two weeks scrubbing away and lifting up all this like old carpet tiles. And then she was so excited because she discovered this old these old tiled little mosaic patterns in the entrance to in Carlos Place. And she was like, she spent hours and hours there until two in the morning one night just taking off this old cement that had been poured over the top wow. of them. And so we unveiled all that, worked really hard and put on these great exhibitions and you know, had showed some great people and uh, co-curated with different people, and Elizabeth was one of the writers in residence there, and from and that was when we decided that Pin would be you know something that we wanted to 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 turn into something more substantial, but that 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 gave us the the opportunity that space at six thousand square feet and across I think it was five or six floors and we had a whole room dedicated to to film art so, so we just had a rotation of different films one week at a time different artists coming in we had a whole floor for sound art We had a whole floor for um moving kinetic sculpture and it's just like incredible to be able to give these opportunities to these artists and the platform and then had on the first floor we had this you know what was the ballroom of this incredible building we had that was where we had a sort of traditional either solo or curated exhibitions uh, group shows and you know, we showed some great people in there, and you know, even people like Judy Blame, who didn't necessarily show very much usually, yeah, but had YouTube. produced fantastic artwork, and that was in a show called "Screw Your Courage the Sticking Place," which I co-curated, in fact, with Princess yeah. Julia, and that was the kind of re- this amazing show that just explored, you know, kind of queer subculture and what that really meant, and that fed into a whole host of other shows that then, you know, were seen across different institutions, looking at, you know, queer subculture. Um, so, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, I don't know how I got on a tangent about my, my, my show. Your successes, no. my <laughs> your successes, achievements. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. yeah, exactly. Well,
2: you can, everyone listening, you can visit simonoldfield.com and you'll be able to see the whole archive there of lots of different things that Simon has yeah. done. He's yeah. also beautifully designed. Yes, did you it see is the Michael website, show? It's so nice having you on the show. I'm so happy we did yes. this. It's so good we're not, you know, because the show is also about friendship yeah. and it's nice that it's all... Yeah,
1: we go, we go ways together. back. So saying that, Simon, as we ask every guest two very personal questions the first one is if you could do an art heist you could steal any work of art in the world for yourself what would it be and why
3: oh my goodness that is such a challenge you know what i i I didn't even prepare for that i was so worried about thinking about cryptocurrency and nfts i didn't think about the the Mm. artwork i would want to steal the most from the world (laughs) um you know i mm, i'm gonna have to come back to you on that just give me a moment and what's the other question Okay. Ask me the sec what's the second question? The other question we ask every
2: guest is what is your favourite colour?
3: Mm, my favourite colour is definitely What is
2: your favourite colour?
3: Yeah, my favourite colour is definitely Eves Klein Blue. I adore it. It's just so rich and deep Ooh. and gorgeous. I love it. It's like uh yeah.
2: and I have it at the end lose of lose yourself in that colour.
3: I could lose myself in that colour. And I have a really beautiful um uh, a really beautiful painter at the end of my bed, which I look at every morning, which is Eaves Climb Blue and I, it's, it's, it's adorable it reminds me of happiness and childhood and love and hope and everything else I just adore it I think it's great and it works so well with so many other colours and that to me is you know really wonderful my favourite artwork that I would want to live with forever hmm I think I might even reach way back I might go way, way back, and I think I probably would go back to the Renaissance. I think, the, I think an incredible Caravaggio would just be amazing. And I think I say that because I, I love what, what those artists did with technology at the time, the way that they adopted the techniques that were made available and transformed what I would say, you know, the course of art history. So to me, like, you know, those artists in the Renaissance period, Caravaggio and you know, Da Vinci and all those artists, but Caravaggio especially, the way he changed the way that we see light Mm. and the movement of light over the body, that, you know, it was revolutionary at the time. And I think that to me is exciting because it maybe is a little seed of what is to come now and how new techniques and new technology will unfurl a whole new raft of, Artists and opportunity, and that's what's exciting. Whatever we're saying today will look entirely different tomorrow, and that's what those artists did. So I think I'd reach back to them because that to me marks a sea change, and that's what we're seeing right now. Love that!
1: What a great, what a great kind of hark back, Simon! That was genius. That was lovely. Well, thank you everyone for listening. It was actually
2: quite literary. It was very like. circular. It was circular.
1: It was circular. Like
2: beautiful, poetic ending yeah, yeah. to the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, everyone
1: listening, Simon so underscore Oldfield on Instagram, listen to, uh, go to our Instagram to see uh, images of what we're talking about today. And then you've got all the other people we've been speaking about, b-ball. crap. Beeble. Beeble.crap. Crap. I
2: keep calling him Beeble.
1: I think it's Beetlejuice. I don't know why I keep saying Beetle. Oh,
3: <laughs> Beeble people
1: yeah. crap on instagram Well,
3: or people well, crap is his, like his his handle but is Beeple hand- is like his Beeple's like, you know people's oh, okay. yeah exactly but
1: there's exactly. Lo- there's lots and lots of artists there to discover but uh, i just say follow simon and take Don't his
3: Do you think we should like come back in like in 3 months and like see because i think things moving so fast i think like we should revisit All right, this let's do this, it. And say like love to and check ourselves and say like But do you know what else
2: i'd love to do is find about find more about where the women are in this, where the
3: trans people are in this, and, like, try and find some of those people as yeah. well. But there are. And actually, it's this pe- collective uh, Golden Town that I'm working with is is, yeah. is all about that. It's, it's exploring these marginalised groups. And and the and the fund that I'm working with, I'm, I've just been appointed the chief curator for this fund called Fortescue and Oldfield. Mm-hmm. And that is all about acquiring work on, um, you know, to make it available for public exhibition. So we've already acquired some fantastic work. We've got some you know, Amaka and Bridget Riley and amazing things in the fund. Part of what we're looking at is, you know, all these other new opportunities and how those, you know, what those artists might, uh, you know, how they might fit into this collection, because what we're making possible with this with this new, with Fortescue and Oldfield is all of the artwork that's been acquired is being made available for public exhibition. So we're loaning the Bridget Riley's to a, a gallery in the UK for an exhibition in Bridget Riley's 90th year another one is going to the Yale Center of British Art in uh, in America at the end of this year we're loaning the Amarco Buefos to another exhibition next year and I think what will be interesting is to see how this world evolves what we can acquire into that and then make it available in many ways for you know part of this bigger discourse and I think some of those marginalized underrepresented groups will be the people that we focus on in that so yeah women and everything else.
2: Well, we will continue this wonderful <laughs> conversation, and thank you for educating us a bit. I feel a slightly oh, God, clearer. Oh, yeah, gotcha! Amazing. Um, and uh, well, a lot clearer. But um, I really appreciate it, and we will be back very soon. Thank you. Stick listening.
1: around, Simon. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, Simon. Bye,
2: Bye. Bye everyone.